I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. We're beginning the 14th bracha in the Shemona Esrei. Another bracha that is talking about the future times. We had a bracha talking about the ingathering of the exiles, Tekabah Shofar, Gadol, Echirutenu, and then we had a bracha about restoring justice. We said that it was referring to justice, setting up courts in Jerusalem the way we used to have them. Then we had a bracha about the tzaddikim, and we had a bracha about getting rid of the rasha'im, of the wicked that try to undermine the Jewish people. And today we're continuing with that whole vision of the future, of the time when the Jewish people will be back in their land and will be a beacon of light to the entire world. So I just wanted to start by uh, bringing in a little bit more about Purim and just in general. The world is obsessed, as we know, with Israel today, and everybody scratches their head in wonderment, because as we know, the little tiny land of Israel is as big as this, as the as New Jersey, and yet the world seems to be obsessed with it. The greatest tyrants of the world have always seen Jerusalem and the temple in its day as their greatest obstacle to world domination. Rabbi Left in his book on Shimon Esrei says, history has demonstrated that this land, small though it is, has also been prized by the nations of the world. Whether its location was deemed strategic, its natural beauty alluring, or its special qualities of holiness irresistible. Both ancient and modern rulers sought to conquer this land and make it their own. So we just read the Megillah, and the Megillah is an incredible example of basically all the tyrants through history. Um, There's somebody who isn't muted, if you could mute yourself. Maybe Sarah? Not sure. Anyway, so um, Ahasuerus in the Purim Megillah represents the tyrants that we've had throughout history in every generation. As we say in the Pesach Haggadah, Bechol Dor Vador. In every generation, they rise up to destroy us. And the Megillah story, the the Purim story begins with this party, this incredible celebration that's going on for 180 days. And the rabbis teach us that every single day of that party, Ahasuerus would reveal six treasures that he had taken from the spoils of the temple. And the idea was, is that in order to rule the world, in order to become the ruler of the world, one had to destroy the Jewish people and their temple, which was considered the place that their God, so to speak, heaven and earth touch. And so this party at the beginning of the Megillah is actually celebrating the destruction of the temple. And that's why it's, it's considered so outlandish that the Jews themselves are attending this party. There's another um, point about the temple that continues throughout the Megillah. Every time Esther invites 
Ahasuerus to the party, to the party that she makes for him. Ahasuerus always says these words to her. He basically says, Esther, I want to give you everything. I want to give you all that I have. Up to half of my kingdom. And the rabbis ask, why does he keep saying? And the, um, <clears throat> those words are referring to the fact that Ahasuerus is telling her, you can have everything I wa you want, but don't ever ask me to rebuild the temple of the Jewish people, because that's one thing that I will never do. So that allusion to the temple and its importance to the tyrants of the world, <clears throat> and it's a threat to them that we come and we rebuild it as we are meant to do in the future. So Jewish power comes from us being in the land of Israel. Jerusalem is the heart of the world. And the temple, the place where the temple was, is the place where we say heaven and earth meet. Heaven and earth touch. Okay, you know what? Let's read the, um, the prayer itself so that we know what we're jumping off from, okay? So the prayer goes like this. It's called Binyan Yerushalayim. Rebuilding Jerusalem. The Lirushalayim Ircha, Rachamim Tashu, and to Jerusalem your city may you return in compassion. Betishkon Betocha Kasher Dibarta, and may you dwell within it as you have spoken. Uveneota Bekaro Biyamenu. May you rebuild it soon in our days, Binyan Olam, as an eternal structure. And may you speedily establish the throne of David within it. Blessed are you, Hashem, the builder of Jerusalem. Okay, so we're going to talk about this bracha and the words that are used in it, and about Jerusalem and the temple in general, historically, and as it, as it uh, pertains to us today. When we moved to the States uh, early on in our uh, career, when our children were little, our son, we were living in Binghamton, New York, and our oldest son came home from school and he was a little bit um, horrified. And he confided in us that he thinks that they said something not Jewish in school today. So he went to the smallest Jewish day school actually in North America, it existed in Binghamton, New York, uh, under the umbrella of the Toro Masora movement. Anyway, we said, well, what did you say? What did you say? He said, well, we put our hands on our hearts like this. And we said, I pledge allegiance to the United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible. Anyway, we started laughing, of course. And we said, don't worry, don't worry. It's okay. You can say that. But he was, you know, worried that he was being fed some non-Jewish something about God and America and all of this stuff. Anyway, for me, it recalls my camp days where we would stand around the Mifkad in the morning or whatever it was called, the assembly, Marlene knows. And we put our hands on our hearts. And any of you who went to camps that were at all Zionistic, we would sing, that if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its left. Let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. And this was a very heavy duty 
prayer that we were saying and we said it with heart and compassion and, and, and fervor and yearning. And this is because <clears throat> Yerushalayim has always been central to the Jewish people. The Jews always prayed towards Yerushalayim. Even halachically, if you're not sure which way is east, the rabbis say, as long as your heart is facing east, even if your body is facing in the wrong way, you're okay. <clears throat> so our heart, if not our bodies, should always be facing east. The, the word Yerushalayim, the name Yerushalayim is mentioned hundreds of times in the Tanakh, actually over 660 times. And it's not mentioned even once in the Quran, just so we know our history. This bracha was originally recited by the angels when Shlomo HaMelech completed the building of the Beis HaMikdash. But this bracha is also telling us that Yerushalayim is not complete until our Beit HaMikdash, our temple is rebuilt. So when we go to Yerushalayim today, if you've been there recently, I mean, you know, your mouth just drops open at the incredible amount of building that's going on in that city and how the prophecy of, of Jerusalem being rebuilt, you know, and the old men and the young children in the streets and all of that uh, that you, we can see before our eyes that's happening. But we have to realize that even though physically Yerushalayim is being built up, it's still considered desolate in spiritual terms. Since the Mikdash, our Beit HaMikdash, the heart of the Jewish people has not yet been restored. Now, according to the Talmud Yerushalmi, this bracha and the next one, Et Semach David Avdecha, which also talks about Mashiach and the restoration of King David's lineage and, and, and the Jewish people coming back to Israel, it used to be that these were one bracha. There were only actually 17 brachas in the Shemona Esrei, according to the Talmud Yerushalmi, but they split these two up. And then that's how it became the 18 brachas. We know that it's really 19 because they added the Lamal Shinim a little bit later. So there's 24 words in this bracha, and the 24, the number 24 represents the different forms of Hashem's four-letter name of Adnus. So we know that Hashem has a name that we don't pronounce, the Yud, the He, the Vav, and the He. So those letters can be rearranged, and it's very Kabbalistic, but basically there's 24 different names that can be made out of those names, which represent the perfection of God's mastery over the world. Also, the number 24 relates to the gifts of kahuna, of the, um, of the role of the Kohen, which can only be fulfilled in Yerushalayim. Now, the bracha begins with the letter Vav, the Li Rushalayan, and. So it's telling us that it's connected to the bracha before. And the bracha before was about the tzaddikim, the glory of the tzaddikim that will be truly manifest in Yerushalayim when Mashiach comes at the end of days. The Vav, the Eitz Yosef, says also hints to the fact 
that in addition to an earthly Jerusalem, we're also referring to a heavenly Jerusalem. And the next idea about the Vav is that it hints at the fact that Yerushalayim is not a value in itself, but rather the culmination and perfection of all the previous brachas. So it's only when everything else comes to fruition from the other brachas before this one that Yerushalayim can reach its spiritual potential. It's, it's, it's just a means to an end of bringing God into the world in his full glory and it's spreading from Yerushalayim out to the entire world. So Vili Yerushalayim Ircha, your city. And the word Ircha is telling us that it's your city, it's only in this area and no other location in the world that's fit to be your city, God. Okay, and we're gonna find out why that is. And we say, Barachami, with mercy. And we're asking Hashem to turn away from anger and treat us with mercy. And Rabbi Vigdor Miller, Zatzal, says that we're asking Hashem, don't wait until we deserve it. <laughs> but recognize the suffering that we've endured throughout Galus, throughout this long and bitter exile. And restore Yerushalayim out of your mercy, not necessarily out of our merits. It says, we're taught that when Hashem left, so to speak, he left in a fury. This is what Yirmiyahu says. Yirmiyahu was the prophet that lived at the time before and after the destruction of the second temple. And the book of Echa, Lamentations, is the book that tells us how Yirmiyahu warned the Jewish people for years and years and years about their behavior and the uh, danger that lurked in the future of the temple being destroyed, but nobody heeded him. So it says that when Hashem left, so to speak, he left in a fury because of all the evil of the children of Israel. And the Talmud enumerates their crimes. Desecration of the Shabbos. These are just some of them. They failed to recite the Shema daily. They humiliated and degraded Torah scholars. They were corrupt in business and financial affairs. They were unashamed and unrepentant of their sins. They failed to rebuke one another for a misdeed. And of course, we know that there was sinas chinam. There was causeless hatred of one Jew to the other. Now, the second temple, of course, that is the main reason that it was destroyed. And of course, we say every year on Tisha B'Av that if it hasn't been rebuilt, it means that that sin has never been rectified. It's never been fixed. So we are still being called upon by God, if nothing else, to love one another Purim is the holiday of unity. Purim is the holiday when all the Jews got together as one force and brought down God's rachamim upon us. And we destroyed our enemies through that act of tshuva, of unity. And this is basically what the message of Purim is for us today. 
that until the Jewish people are unified, we know we cannot accept the Torah properly and we can't live it properly when there's division and separation. That's an illusion that we continue to perpetuate. As somebody once said, it's our bodies that give us the illusion of division. But if a person can see through the body, the clothing of the soul, and see through to the soul, we realize that all Jews are all one soul, one soul and one body. Isaiah, Yeshaya says, Jerusalem will only be redeemed through righteousness. So we say, and you should dwell within her, as you have said, the tishkon, the word tishkon refers to the shekhinah. It's the same root as the word of the Shekhinah. What's a Shekhinah? The Shekhinah is the divine presence of God that, so to speak, comes into this world. It's a feminine word. You know, when people ask, is God masculine or feminine? Why do we call him he? God is neither. We call him he for convenience. God, uh, you know, is everything and beyond anything we can imagine. But there are certain words uh, for God that are feminine to connote a certain aspect or manifestation. So the Shekhinah refers to the, to the holy presence of God, which dwelled in the Beis Amikdash. Now in the Torah portions, we're reading a lot about the Mishkan that the Jewish people built in the desert, a place where God himself would come and rest. And of course, there are many questions about that. How can a physical, how can a physical space, a building, be a place for God who is beyond limitations, infinite rest? So, of course, there's a reading there that says that, um, that God should rest in each one of us singularly, that when we make ourselves into a vessel for God to rest in, that he himself, so to speak, can come down and have a place in this world. So Besocha also means in the middle, in the center. Since the Beis HaMikdash is in the center of Yerushalayim and Hashem's presence is there. Chazal, our sages tell us that Hashem Shekhinah has never left the Kotel HaMa'aravi. That is why not only Jews from all over the world, one of their first destinations when they come to Israel is to go to the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall or the Kotel or the Kaisel or whatever it is that you want to call it. And it's because there was a promise written in the Gemara that says that even if I leave Israel, so to speak, if I go into exile with my people, my Shekhinah will always be there at the Kotel, at the Kotel Amaravi. So that is the greatest place of God's divine presence that we have right now in the world. As my Rebison used to like to say, that's the main post office, right? But if you want to, you know, not send your letter through the mail, but you want to get right to the main post office, that's why you go there because your prayers go straight up from that place. Of course, it's still not the Temple Mount, but it's as close as we can get. And we were told that it would never be destroyed, even this remnant of the temple. So Rambam Paskins that the Kedusha of Yerushalayim is eternal, since the Shekhinah is there and the Shekhinah is eternal. Now, as you know, we're prohibited 
of entering the Temple Mount, even today, Jews do not go up onto the Temple Mount where the Dome of the Rock is, because that, that, that is the place where the concentration of the divine presence is more potent than anywhere else. We also say that we don't know where the Holy of Holies is specifically. So a person doesn't want to walk, especially in that area. And so Jews do not go up there at all. We're forbidden to go up there according to many uh, posting until the day that the temple is rebuilt. So when we say v'tishkom betocha ka'asher dibarta, as you spoke, we're referring to all the prophecies concerning the restoration of Yerushalayim. We're praying in this prayer that every detail of those prophecies should be fulfilled. And build her soon in our days. Binyan Olam, an eternal building. So the word build in this bracha connotes all details of perfection that are part of building Yerushalayim. What are those details? That we'll have a Sanhedrin again, a, a court of law. We'll have prophets and homes where the tzaddikim live right around the, the Temple Mount. Kohanim, if you go, if you see the archaeological excavations in that area, you'll see that a lot of Kohanim lived close to the Temple, and they all had mikvahs in their homes so they could purify themselves. And we're asking for all of this to come back again. And when we say the word in our days, speedily in our days, we're saying build her from all our days, meaning us, us that are living today, that all the mitzvos and all the Torah learning that we're doing right now today, that we fill our days with, should put another metaphorical brick on the base of Mikdash. So, you know, I, when my kids were little, right, a lot of what, what Jewish mothers will say to their kids when their kids do a mitzvah or they do something good, they'll say, ah, you just put a brick on the base of Mikdash. You just built, a, you know, you just were building it. So the idea is that we are building it. We are building it right now. We'll see at the end of the bracha that the bracha is written in the present tense. Building Jerusalem right now through us, through our acts, through the everyday Torah learning, through the everyday acts of kindness that we do. Even in schools and preschools, they'll have, they'll build a, you know, they'll, they'll have bricks and the kid will come in and with a mitzvah note and the teacher will put a brick, right, on the existing bricks. So that the children actually see this image, the power of one act, the incredible power of every individual and all the Jews working together to rebuild the Beit HaMikdash. Binyan Olam, that it should be an eternal building. What does this mean? So we know that all of the other, the first and the second Bate Mikdash Shim were destroyed. But this third base Hamikdash, we're told, is going to be eternal. It will never, ever be destroyed. And the reason is, is because it will be built by Hashem himself. It will not be built by human hands. 
We have a, an idea that says that the Beta Mikdash will literally descend from heaven. Okay, Binyan Olam, an eternal building, also means that we're talking about the building of the world. Meaning that the Beit HaMikdash will allow the world to reach its potential and perfection. When Yerushalayim is rebuilt with the Beit HaMikdash at its center, the entire world will benefit from it. The entire world will be able to reach its perfection and full potential. So when we say rebuilt, again, we're not referring to the sticks and stones. We're not referring to the incredible real estate and construction that's going on, even though obviously that's an illusion. And it's certainly part of the prophecy that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. But in this prayer, we're yearning for it to be rebuilt spiritually, because we know that Israel still has a long way to go in recognizing its mission in this world and getting back on course in realizing that what the founders of Israel said when they said, you know, we will be a, a, a great nation when we are like all the other nations of the world, that they make a tremendous error thinking that. Or as I think it was Ben Gurion famously said, when there are prostitutes in the street, then we'll be like every other nation. This is what he considered the greatest goal for the Jewish people in their city, yes. And unfortunately, that's who the running of the country fell to at the beginning of the state. The secularists who saw religion as outdated, as saw that being the obstacle and what impeded the Jewish people from being like everybody else. And if we could just get rid of this antiquated religion, we could be like all the other nations. And we know that even Theodore Herzl himself, who was an extremely assimilated Jew, married to a non-Jew, whose children never went on. I think they one had committed suicide and he had no door out. He had no generations coming from him. He was willing to take Uganda in the early days because he had no clue. As much as he was moved by the anti-Semitism in the world, the Dreyfus affair, he had no clue that the Jews have a greater mission in this world than just, you know, living peacefully, filling our bellies and having great technology and being the startup nation. And so this, this, this bracha is really addressing the true nature of what Yerushalayim and Israel is supposed to be to the rest of the world. So when we think that rebuilt only means rebuilt physically, which unfortunately is where a lot of Jews stop in their understanding of the Jewish people's role in this world. We have to realize with this analogy of a patient, it's like a, a patient who receives an artificial heart. So he might appear healthy, but inside he's full of anxiety about this artificial device because it could be rejected or malfunction because it's vulnerable to infections and susceptible to lethal side effects. Artificial is not the real thing. You can create a, 
you know, a, an outer external vision of everything looks good, everything looks perfect, but if the inside is missing, then it's going to crumble. And so this prayer is talking about us developing the internal aspect of Yerushalayim together with the outside. We talked about this before, that we need both. We need the external, but without the neshama inside the body, it's a golem, right? It's not real. It can't do what it's supposed to do. The heart of Jerusalem is the heart of mankind in general. And Jews, and for Jews in particular, it's the base Hamikdash. The site where the Beit Hamikdash will be rebuilt is the same site where Adam was created. We're said that God took earth from the four corners of the earth and created man in this spot on the Temple Mount. And that's why all human beings, not just the Jewish people, are drawn to this point in the universe because it's where all of humankind emanated from. It's where we all got our beginning. So Jerusalem pulls everybody. And at the end of the days, there are so many prophecies talking about how all the nations of the world will come there. And they already are. There are already many nations of the world who come there and sing and dance and recognize the holiness of this place. This is where God breathed life into man. The temple is the generator for all mankind. And after its destruction, it's like we have this artificial heart, which is weak and fragile. And basically, it's the idea that the whole system can collapse at any time without the temple at its center. In the future, all exiles will be gathered into Yerushalayim, it says in Kohelis Rabbah, but yet it will never be filled. There's an idea that there will always be space for more and more people to come, right? We had this miracle in the temple, we're told, that people would be crammed into the temple, but when they bowed down, they had a tremendous amount of room between each of them. It was miraculous. But there's all kinds of things talked about that there will be more than enough space for everybody, right? We know that in future times, it says that Israel will stretch like the, like the skin of a deer, which is stretched over this, the deer's body. It says that it will stretch, that the mountains will flatten and the valleys will rise and the land will stretch in terms of its um, width and length, and it will be able to encompass all the Jewish people when they return, and more than that. Jerusalem will become the capital city of all the nations of the world, it says in Shir Hashirim. It will expand its borders till it reaches the gates of Damascus. Okay, and establish, may you speedily establish the throne of David within it. So why do we mention David in the bracha about Yerushalayim? Because according to Jewish belief, Yerushalayim can only be complete 
when a messianic king who descends from David, from David HaMelech, sits on the throne in Yerushalayim. The full perfection of Yerushalayim will be achieved only when it is the seat of the Davidic kingdom. So Kisei David refers to Mashiach ben Yosef. There's two Mashiachs, by the way. A lot of people don't know this. I actually read an article in Mishpacha of a young guy who went and visited this place called Jerba, De Jerba. I don't know how you pronounce it. Anyway, whatever, he was at a Purim carnival there and they had two show, they had a carnival and you could blow the shofar of Mashiach. So he went to one booth where they had this fancy shofar that was curled and long and he blew the shofar and then he went to the next um, booth and there was also a, a guy who was letting people blow the shofar and he said, oh, I already did that. And he said, no, no, you didn't. You blew the Mashiach ben Yosef. This is the Mashiach ben David. So what's the difference between the two? We're going to talk more about it next week. But the Kisei David refers to Mashiach ben Yosef, who will be a support and harbinger of Mashiach ben David. Now, sources say that this Mashiach ben Yosef is destined to be killed in battle, but Jews can avert his death through prayer. Okay, so that's one opinion. I've heard another opinion that Mashiach ben Yosef is not one person, but it's people throughout history, throughout Jewish history, that have moved us forward in some very um, powerful way towards our future, towards the future rebuilding of our temple. So, for example, even somebody like Theodore Herzl, who was not a religious Jew, who was really assimilated, who was a Tinoch Shanishba, if you want, came from a very assimilated family, that there are certain people throughout history that move the Jewish people further along in our, and they not, might not necessarily, and, and this is what's called Mashiach ben Yosef. Okay. Um, and then we say, Baruch atah Hashem, Bonei Yerushalayim. Blessed are you, Hashem, who builds Yerushalayim. And it's in the present tense. Because the building of Yerushalayim is an ongoing process, like we said, that includes suffering and exile. There's a story in the Gemara of a Jew who was benching. He was saying the Birkat HaMazon after eating bread. And when he came to the part of Uvenei Yerushalayim, Yer HaKodesh Buhair V'yamenu, he was so distraught that he grabbed a knife off of the table where he was benching and he plunged it into his heart. Yes. And because of this, we actually have a halacha that is still to today, okay? That we, that's why the Chinese eat with chopsticks. No, I, I, <laughs> okay, yeah. Dangerous stuff to have knives on the table. We have a halacha today that you're supposed to take your knives off the table during the week. If you have bread and you're benching, you're supposed to take the knives off the table. The only days you don't have to is on Shabbos or Yantam because we say the joy of these days protects a person from depression. But somebody who really is sensitive and aches and recognizes and feels the pain and the suffering of being in Galut, of being in exile, who really lives with a heightened sense of what we're missing, 
could possibly, let's say, come to be like this man in the Gemara. Obviously, this is an extreme case of somebody who really understood and felt what it is not to have the temple, not to have Yerushalayim built in the way it's supposed to be, to be suffering and living in Galut. Okay, where did the name Yerushalayim come from? Where do we get this name of this city? So there's a couple of ideas here. The Medrash says that Avraham actually named that spot because that also was the same spot where Adam and Chava were created. It was the same spot where, where, where Avraham takes Yitzchak, his son, up to that mountain, to the Akedah, to sacrifice him. As a matter of fact, inside the Dome of the Rock, for those of you who have never been there, there's actually a huge stone. And, you know, the Arabs say this is where Muhammad took off on his horse, on his winged horse. But the Jews actually say that this is the stone, the foundation stone that the world was created from, right? Even in science, the idea of the Big Bang is that, not that I'm a scientist, please, but, you know, that everything began from one point and then poof, there was this bang and it just exploded. So, you know, anybody with a brain will ask scientists, yeah, so where did the Big Bang come from, huh? You know, like, no, they don't go there. They don't go there. But if you read and you understand the beginning of Horatius and, and, and people don't study the first seven days of creation and in any deep way, because it's extremely difficult and you really do have to know science to understand it. But what you do recognize is that the Jews, uh, in, the, in all of the commentaries and the Zohar and the mystical writings, there's so much in there about the creation of the world as it pertains to science. And a lot of it lines up with what scientists have discovered. But this foundation stone that's there on top of the mountain is the place that we say, not only that Avraham put Yitzchak, but that the world began from scientifically. That was where the Big Bang started. So when uh, when Avraham was there in this place, this future site of the Temple Mount, this focal point of the city, he called it Hashem Yireh, God will see, Yireh. And this is in Bereshis, chapter 22, 14. And the word Yeru, which is the first part of Yerushalayim, de derives from this description. Now, prior to Avraham, the city had already had a name. It was given to it by Shame. Shame was one of the sons of Noah. Noah had three sons, Shame, Ham, and Yefet. Shame are where the Jewish people come from, from the word Sem, right? Shame in English, if you say you're an anti-Semite, right? In Hebrew, you say anti-Shemiut. Anti-Shemiut is from Shame. Because the Jewish people came from shame. Actually, the Arabs did too. They're also called Semites. You can be an anti-Semite and hate Arabs. Okay? So whether you hate, you're a self-hating Jew or you hate Arabs, you got two choices there, right? <laughs> They're all, we're all called Semites. Okay, got to put a little humor into this class. Um, but shame was the son of Noah. He was the king of the city, and he, he also was known by another name of Malkit Tzedek. 
Malki Tzedek, which means really a righteous king. He was a good king. And he called the city Shalem. Shalem means complete, perfect. Okay? So it says that Hashem did not want to slight either of these tzaddikim. So he put the name together. He put the two names together and Hashem called it Yerushalayim, right? God will see and Shalem, perfect. But we see that it's not really Shalem. It's really Yerushalayim with a Yud there. Although you should know that throughout Tanakh, it's called Yerushalayim. We're going to talk about that, why we call it Yerushalayim, but it's actually called Yerushalayim. So the first question is, why isn't it called Shalem Yireh? Because Malki Tzedek, who was the son of Noah, came before Avraham, right? There are 10 generations, just for a little history for everyone. There were 10 generations between Adam and Noah, and 10 generations between Noah and Avraham. Okay? So Noah came before Avraham, so we should call it first Shalem Yireh. The name was already there. So, okay, we'll talk about that. One sec. Another question. Why did Hashem refer to Abraham's designation as Yeru and not Yireh? Why deviate from the exact name? And the third question. Shame called it Shalem. Why do we say Shalayim? Why do we add a Yur? Oh, I better hurry up here. Okay, so as I said, in the Tanakh, Yerushalayim is mostly written without a Yud, but even though it's written Yerushalayim, we pronounce it as if it has a Yud. Okay? We pronounce it Yerushalayim even though it's Yerushalayim. So each one of these people, Avraham, uh, Malkitzedek, selected a name to convey his vision of perfection. So each name expresses, expresses a difference in their understanding of the world and nature. So shame, who was the son of Noah, represents the Gentiles of the world. Because the city of Yerushalayim belongs to everyone. As we said earlier, Yerushalayim will become the capital of all cities in the world. So this name that shame gave it, Shalem, represents the non-Jew in the world who functions within nature. We know that the non-Jews were given Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach, the seven mitzvahs, right? If a non-Jew keeps these seven mitzvahs, most of which are included in the, in the um, Ten Commandments, right? They don't have to keep Shabbos. They have one mitzvah that we don't have in the Ten Commandments, which is that they're not allowed to eat from a living animal, right? Aver minachai, it's called. But they have other mitzvahs, like they're supposed to believe in one God and not worship idols, and they're supposed to honor their parents, and they're supposed to set up courts, justice systems. Very interestingly, when we were living in Binghamton, New York, the Chabad there is very big, and there's 2,000 Jewish students on campus there. Uh, a lot, many of whom come from the New York area. And they once brought this minister. Well, he's not a minister anymore, but he was, he was a minister who took down his cross on top of his church in the deep Bible belt south of America. 
and they became a congregation of B'nai Noach. They stopped believing in Jesus and they believed in the one God. And he came and spoke and all of these Jewish kids were sitting in the audience, you know, it was just incredible. And he was explaining how they came to it. And that today, you know, people were asking, well, do you keep like, do you keep the Jewish holidays? Like, do you, do you keep Shabbat? So he was saying, we keep them, we celebrate them, but we don't have to do any of the halachot. We don't have to worry about, you know, turning on and off lights or any of these things. And they were in touch with Rabbi Gewurz, I think, who was the founder of Partners in Torah and other rabbis who would literally go there. I don't know whether, whether they were in Tennessee or somewhere like that. They would go and study with them the parts of the Torah that they need to know. They had Bible study, of course, they studied the Torah and anything that was relevant to them. They say, even with only seven mitzvot, you can spend your entire life just studying those seven. And, 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 and it's deeper and deeper and layered and layered and layered in terms of being a righteous Gentile. So there is such a thing. You can Google it. It's very, very interesting. But the idea of shame and the seven mitzvahs b'nei Noah is a non-Jew who functions within teva, within nature. And the seven mitzvahs preserve are precepts that preserve the natural order of the world. They're in sync with God's plan for the world. They work with God to preserve the natural order. But a Jew... Avraham, who was the first, so to speak, monotheist, the first, he wasn't really a Jew at this point. Jews, the idea of being a Jew didn't come much later. He was a Hebrew, as we've said in other classes, he crossed over. He was a Hebrew in that he believed in one God. The idea of a Jew is that we have to transcend the natural world. We have to elevate the natural world to greater spiritual heights. We have to bring the world to its ultimate perfection. And it's represented by this mitzvah of Mila that we have that the non-Jews don't have. When do we do Mila? We do it on the eighth day. The number eight always connotes above nature. Seven are the seven days of the week. Seven represent Teva. But we Jews go above nature, right? As I've said in other classes, when... God takes Avraham outside and it says, look at the stars. When Avraham is wondering, is he ever going to have a child? Is he ever going to have somebody he can pass on this Torah to? And God says, come outside. And the rabbis teach us, God is telling Avraham, you do not live within the parameters of nature. The Jewish people are outside and above, like the stars, the laws of nature. We can live above the stars. We're not ruled by the stars and the horoscope and the astrology the way non-Jews are. Now, if we choose not to exercise our power, then we Jews will live under and within Teva if we don't understand the incredible power that we have to go above it. This is why so many Jews can't be satisfied and have this spiritual hunger and run after all kinds of cults and different kinds of religions and isms and philosophies because it's very hard for us to fill ourselves spiritually. Our container is much bigger. Bigger doesn't mean better. Bigger means different. And when we don't fill that container, we feel 
that we are restless, that we can't be at peace, we can't be emotionally and mentally and physically in every way in a place of shlemut, shalem. We need the yiru. God will see that we will strive above nature. So Shem ben Noah saw the perfection of the city and he called it complete and perfect. Avraham only saw it as a means to an end, right? All that gorgeous construction that's taking place there. So what? It's just a means to an end. Otherwise, it's an empty skeleton. It's an empty building. It has no neshama. It has no heart. The heart is artificial and weak and open to disease unless it becomes the true flesh and blood heart. So Abraham saw the city as an, and not an end in itself, but rather we use it to achieve a perfection that's greater than physical flawlessness. We use it to invest it, to become a city that is a manifestation of what emanated from it from the very beginning of time, right? The purpose of the world. God creates the world with Adam and Chava, with the Big Bang. There was a purpose. Before God created the world, he looked into the Torah, we're told. The Torah was the blueprint for creation. Just like an architect, before they build a building, they lay down the plans, they figure out where everything's going to go and what purpose there is to it all. God looks into the Torah and creates the world. You know, if we would take the world back to its complete spiritual source, it would literally just turn into the Torah. Right? Okay, Avraham calls it Yireh, also which means a meeting place where God and man can meet, where God scrutinizes the service of man as he endeavors to perfect himself and the world in order to reach the domain of holiness. Yireh, God will see. The Vilna Gaon says it's a promise that the children of Avraham will see Hashem there. The divine presence is eternally there. And this word Yireh will inspire every Jew to an awareness, right? The word Yireh means to see, to be aware. Yirat Shemayim, right? We say Hakol Bidei Shemayim. Everything is in the hands of heaven except for one thing, Yirat Shemayim. That's within our free will, whether or not we'll see, whether or not we'll apprehend God in the world, make him visible bring us into our lives, create a relationship with them. That's up to us. God can't do that for us. God's presence is always there in Yerushalayim. Even today, the Shekhinah is there, but not nearly the way it could be, right? It's on very low voltage. It's on low volume. You have to turn up your hearing aid to hear it, right? But the idea is that, you know, we want it to be loud and clear, and emanate from there to the whole world. I don't know, I wrote down here, I guess I gave this class many years ago, but my daughter, I guess, was in Israel on her seminary year. And I guess I was speaking to her and she said, Ima, I can't spend Shabbos anywhere else but Jerusalem. 
I can't go anywhere else. Maybe I said, you know, I have a friend in Zichron Yaakov. I have a friend here. Why don't you try them? She said, no, I can't go anywhere else. Every Shabbos that I spend in Israel is precious in Jerusalem. And she even said, I dovened Vasikin at the Kotel this past Shabbat. Vasikin is the earliest time you can doven. Okay. Oh my goodness, we have to finish. Yerushalayim is a dual city. It's the, the, the part we see is the physical part, but it has a spiritual twin. And one day they will merge and form an inseparable entity. Today, the Yud is omitted from Yerushalayim, but this Yud represents the spiritual Yerushalayim to which we are not completely privy. We read it Yerushalayim, even though it says Yerushalayim in all the sources in Tanakh, as in anticipation of the future when the Yud will be there, when there will be the spiritual and the physical together. Okay, the Torah promises that when we use this land for spiritual purpose for which it was created and given to us, then other nations will not covet the land. Because Eretz Yisrael and the Jewish nation were singled out for one goal, and that is to use all the material and physical creation for spiritual goals. The material world is just a means to an end. The Jew knows how to elevate it and make it godly. It's like, you know, the nations of the world, they want our piece of land. It's a puzzle. Why have all the nations of the world um, coveted? This small little piece of land, which for thousands of years didn't grow anything, which was swampland, which was desert, which was arid. Yes, it was in a good place geographically in terms of trade and everything else, but it didn't make any sense. So God says when the Jews live on the land properly, when they live according to the Torah, when they live in the land with it as a means to the end, there won't be any coveting because how will the non-Jews look at it? They'll look at it in the way that a peasant looks at a princess. The Ibn Ezra says, if the peasant is sane, if he has any sanity about him, he will not desire the princess, princess because he knows she's out of bounds. He might admire her. He might think she's beautiful, but he won't covet her because he knows it's impossible that she's going to marry a peasant. And this is how we should all look at something that belongs to someone else. And that's the way the non-Jews will look at Yerushalayim and Israel when we are living on it properly. Today, the Arabs are like the peasant who wants the princess. They don't see it as beyond themselves or see themselves as aliens because the Jews themselves treat Eretz Yisrael and Yerushalayim as if it were not imbued with holiness. Hashem has given us so many chances to reestablish our claim as a holy nation to a holy land. Another reason why Jerusalem is so special, it says in the, in the Gemara and Kiddushin, 10 measures of beauty were allotted to the world. Yerushalayim took nine, leaving one for the rest of the world. This beauty that we're talking about is not physical. It refers to spiritual revitalization that will take place there. It says that when Yerushalayim will be rebuilt, there will be no such thing as depression, only joy. The temple, in the days when there was a temple, the temple was the source of blessing. A sinner could be relieved of the effects of his sin by bringing a sacrifice. 
when we recite, it says that uh, uh, Sir Moses Montefiore, when he would visit Jerusalem, he would bring back a stone from there and use it as his pillow to remember Jerusalem. We have to recite this bracha with intense longing for our holy land and sacred city, because every time we do, we're putting another brick on the Beit HaMikdash. We're bringing ourselves one step closer to the redemption. The building of Yerushalayim is an ongoing process. I just want to end with the words of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Zatzal, who wrote this after Jerusalem was made the capital of Israel. The embassy was moved, sorry, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. A formal recognition of Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Israel. So this is what he wrote. We welcome today's decision by the United States to recognize as the capital of Israel, Jerusalem, whose name means city of peace. We know what it really means. God will see peace, okay? This recognition is an essential element in any lasting peace in the region. Quote, unlike other guardians of the city, from the Romans to the Crusaders to Jordan, between 1949 and 1967, Israel has protected the holy sites of all three Abrahamic faiths, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and guaranteed access to them. Today, okay, I'm not going to read that. Okay. Um, the sustained denial in many parts of the world of the Jewish connection with Jerusalem is dishonest, unacceptable, and a key element in the refusal to recognize the Jewish people's right to exist in the land of their origins. Mentioned over 660 times in the Hebrew Bible, Jerusalem was the beating heart of Jewish faith more than a thousand years before the birth of Christianity and two and a half millennia before the birth of Islam. Since then, though dispersed around the world, Jews never cease to pray about Jerusalem, face Jerusalem, speak the language of Jerusalem, remember it at every wedding they celebrate, in every home they build, and at the high and holiest moments of the Jewish year. Outside the United Nations building in New York is a wall bearing the famous words of Isaiah. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Too often the nations of the world forget the words that immediately precede these. Ki mitzion teitze Torah, udvar Hashem mirushalayim. For out of Zion, this will happen when out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Yerushalayim. These words spoken 27 centuries ago remain the greatest of all prayers for peace and they remain humanity's best hope for peace in the Middle East and in the world. Thank you for listening. Thank you,